0: Section 17 of Mrs. Diamond. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Ruhi Huck. Mrs. Diamond by Anne Isabella Thackeray Ritchie. Part 2 Chapter 9 Joselyn's Stepmother It was a valley filled with sweetest sounds, a languid music haunted everywhere, from rustling corn and songbirds calling clear, down sloping uplands which some wood surrounds, with tinkling rills just heard but not too near, and low of cattle on the distant plain, and peal of far-off bells now caught, then lost again. T. Miller it was not in susanna's nature to dwell upon vague and melancholy suggestions with the morning came a hopeful aspect of things a burst of sunshine and youthful spirits crowbeck notwithstanding the heavy cornices and hangings began to look more homelike. the new mistress of the place was down betimes her presence seemed already to brighten everything she went out into the garden for a few minutes before breakfast As she stood on the lawn, in her fresh morning dress, the sunshine set her hair aflame. The hills across the water seemed to be also touched with some gentle mood of rainbow light. The green slopes beyond the lake were green, soft, silent as the the sward on which she stood. George Dyson and his father came striding up from the boat house across the dewy fields, trudging upon daisy flowers with their heavy hobnailed boots. The little calves ran to meet them with playful starts and caresses. Jock, the sheep dog, leapt a fence and darted off after some imaginary sheep. Then came Joe, advancing from beyond the trees with his rod and with fish in his basket. Good morning, said Joe. Look here. I caught all these up by my uncle's boathouse this morning. Tempe was out. She's all right again. Aunt Fanny is always making scares about nothing at all. Susie longed to ask more about Tempe and Aunt Fanny and life at Balsover, so she found it difficult to frame her questions. Joe also seemed anxious to explain and yet reluctant to speak. He, too, had something on his mind. I am afraid your sister is very unhappy, said Susanna at last. They are both very unhappy, said Joe, then with a heroic effort, for he did not like to hurt his pretty shy stepmother. I think, said Joe, turning red and looking into his basket, if you had known more of Charlie, you would have advised my father differently. I said, Susie, I never. Then she stopped short. She was a new-made wife and not yet used to her position. Was it for her to disclaim all responsibility in her husband's actions? What did wives do under such circumstances? Susie, in her perplexity, fell back upon another question. What has your cousin done to trouble your father so much, she asked, also with eyes cast down? He has been a fool, said Joe. He has spent his own money and he once got me to back a lame horse. Papa never could forgive that. I think this is about the worst, except that row." at Oxford, when Charlie was caught and the others got off. And, and I'm afraid there was something else in London, added Joe. Papa tells me he was seen drinking, but Charlie was so cut up, poor fellow, he hardly knew what he was about. One can't wonder at your father's anxiety, said Mrs. Diamond gravely. I saw your cousin for a moment in London. I felt very sorry for him. Somehow, as Joe talked on, little by little, Susie began to find her sympathies enlisted on Charlie's side. Poor fellow, she said pityingly, forgetting her own determination to blame. Here goes Hicks. Papa has done his business, cries Jocelyn, abruptly disappearing with his fish as the bailiff issued from the study window. The Colonel followed, and seeing his wife, came up to her with a smile. "Mr. Hicks, I want to introduce you to my wife." said Colonel Diamond proudly, and Mr. Hicks, a brown, tattered man who seemed bailiff to many winds and storms and moors, made a clumsy, smiling salutation to the smiling, graceful young lady. The new family breakfasted as they had dined in a triangle at the round table. Susie poured out tea from behind the old-fashioned silver urn. The colonel looked round, satisfied, dissatisfied. The place seems empty without Tempy," said he. You saw her come this morning, Joe. When is your sister coming back? Joe didn't answer. He was not at ease with his father. I'm afraid from what Joe tells me that she's very unhappy indeed, said Susie, blushing up. That is why she keeps away. She cannot bear to differ from you. John, don't you think, do you really think there's no hope at all for them? Is it possible, she continued bravely, that we may have done your nephew injustice? My dear Susanna, my dear woman, said the colonel gravely, putting down his paper and looking fixedly at her. Pray do not let me hear you speak in this way again. Jocelyn, with a stern glance at his son, has no doubt influenced you. Do you suppose he cares more than I do for his sister's ultimate happiness? It is no kindness on his part or to yours to interfere.' to urge me to consent to Tempe's lifelong misery. My duty as a father and as head of the family is to decide upon what seems to me best and right for my children and for their good. Do you know that this fellow is a gambler, a drunkard? He was seen in a public eating house in London the very night he had asked me for my child in marriage. Tempe's husband must be a good true man, one she can trust, an upright man. "'who will love her and make her happy and respected. "'You, Susie, know, but too well the suffering "'that a man with a low standard of honour "'can inflict upon a high-minded lady.' "'Susie turned crimson. "'She could not answer. "'We all have to face the truth,' said the Colonel. "'I am sorry to speak of my own nephew so harshly, "'but I look upon Charles as an adventurer "'and got uninfluenced by mercenary motives.' Why should I refuse my consent if I trusted him or believed him in the least worthy of Tempe? Papa, cried Joe hotly, indeed you are unjust to poor Charlie. He is desperately in love. He has been silly. He has no interested motives. I beg you will drop the subject, Joe, said the colonel. Tempe is rich as girls go.' Even without your share of my property, the interest of your poor mother's money now amounts to a considerable sum. And by the way, said the colonel, glad to change the subject, I shall have to get you to help me, Joe, as soon as you are of age, to make a provision for Susie here, who hasn't any expectations or settlements, said the colonel, smiling and softening. And who would be poorly left if anything happened to me?' The colonel, as elderly people are apt to do, rather enjoyed discussing such eventualities. Neither Susie nor Joe found any pleasure in the conversation. Joe, with an awkward grunt, got up and left the room. And Susie, meanwhile, sat silent, looking at the walls of the room, at the Lancia stags, the showy Italian daubs, the print of the passing of the reform bill with all our present nesters and Ulysses, as spruce young men in strap trousers then she slowly turned her eyes upon her husband as he stood with his back to the chimney erect and martial even in retreat colonel diamond was making believe to read the paper which had just come in reality greatly agitated though he looked so calm he was one of those people who having once made up their minds never see any great reasons to alter them unless some stronger will enforces the change When Susie looked up with tears in her eyes, all troubled by his severe tone, her sweet, anxious, shy look seemed to absolve him, and it won his forgiveness. Only Susie could not quite forgive herself. John Diamond was a weak man, kind-hearted, hot-headed, honorable, and both obstinate and credulous, and created to be ruled— for some years after his first wife's death, he had constituted Fanny in a sort of directress. Her unhesitating assumptions suited some want in his nature at the time. Perhaps of late he had changed in this respect. It most certainly still suited Miss Bolsover that people should do as she told him. She should have been abbess of a monastery, prime minister of some kingdom where women governed the state. She had not imagination enough to correct the imperiousness of her nature, whereas Susanna had too much to allow freedom to her actions. And so today again she gave in with a sigh. The power of sulking persistence which some people can wield was not hers. That gift of adaptiveness which belonged to Susanna Diamond led her to acquiesce in the conclusions of those she loved." The colonel went over to Bolsover in the course of the morning. Susie begged to be left at home. She was busy unpacking, settling down, exploring her domain. She had a grand bedroom with cornices, red damask curtains and solemn mahogany furniture to match. There were prints of the Duke and Duchess of Kent on the wall and of the Queen as a pretty little girl with a frill and a coral necklace. The young mistress of Crowbeck, looked about, wandering along the passages of a new kingdom, followed by an obsequious housemaid who led her from room to room. Then she came back to her own pretty boudoir, where her prince and her various possessions were lying ready to be set out. Among them was that old drawing of Naomi and Ruth from Madame du Parc's. How vividly she could see it all, and the studio and the neglected garden so unlike the trim lawns at Crowbeck Place. Jocelyn came up to her later in the day as she stood complacently among her girlish treasures. He gave a quick asking look. Susie shook her head. Your father is gone over to the hall to see Tempe. He ordered his horse just now. He must know best, she repeated with some effort. We must trust to him, Joe. We can't help ourselves, said Jocelyn. Then he added rather gruffly, Would you care to come out with me, Mrs. Diamond? He had elected to call her Mrs. Diamond. I shall have to be back at my tutor's tomorrow, but I should like to show you about the place today. Tempe told me she might be over in Tarndale. I could row you across. As he spoke, some breeze came into the room. The whole lake seemed to uprise with an inviting ripple, and through the open window, the distant shriek of the railway reached them from the station in the garden of Sweet Briar. That is the afternoon up train, said Joe in a satisfied tone. Charlie has gone back in it. I did not like to tell Papa. I would have vexed him too much. I thought how it was when Tempy went off to the hall last night. She knew he would be coming. Oh, how wrong. How could she, cried Susie. Oh, Jocelyn, why didn't you warn us? He's gone again, said Joe dodgedly. It was only to say goodbye, poor fellow. And as the young stepmother, troubled, bewildered, began to exclaim, Don't you tell Papa, her stepson interrupted. You only know it because I thought I could trust you. You will get me into no end of trouble, and poor Tempy has enough to bear as it is. Let Aunt Fanny tell Papa. She sent for Charlie, not I. This was true enough, but Susanna felt somehow as if the whole thing was confused and wrong, and jarring upon her sense of right and family honour. Listen, she said with some spirit, if you ever see Charlie, if ever Charlie comes here again, I shall tell your father. At present, I do not feel as if I should interfere. But even at the risk of getting into trouble, Joe, we cannot all be living in his house, acting parts and deceiving him. It is not for Tempe's happiness, or yours or mine. I know that, said the young man impatiently. Come along, I will show you the way to the boathouse. End of Section 17